how many of you share this problem with me? My, my brain, sometimes my mind, jumps here, there, and wherever, and it lands on something and processes something before I have every co any cognitive ability to say, leave that alone, that's irrelevant, that has nothing to do, right? And so I think apart from my ability to stop it from happening, a few things have jumped in my head this morning. First of all, apparently, when Steve Salins prays, it upsets children. Uh, it's a... So I don't know if that's a curse. I don't know what that is, but you'll have to deal with that, obviously. Uh, secondly, you can quiet a child by giving them to the scariest man in the room. I don't, I don't know if it made it happy or if it was just, you're going to cry, deal with this, right? Um, he was quite happy to help take up the offering, which any time a child wants to get near money is a red flag for me. So your family is going to have to sort that out. If he wants to go and help you count it, the answer is no. Absolutely no. Uh, thinking to myself, how many pastors do I know uh, who would just, they're killing to hear these sounds in their church, right? And then when Becky said, who had a new baby in their family? The first thought in my mind was, thank you, God, it's not us. <laughs> so as a pastor, loving it, as a dad, oh, man, if that sound entered my home, I've, I've told Heather many times, if any more children come into this home, I have to live somewhere else. It's, I just, I'm sorry, that's, that's where we're. Oh, it's good to be here this morning. Can you uh, spend a couple minutes with me in prayer together this morning as we uh, settle in and open up God's Word and know that uh, Ray Lewis is suffering in hospital right now, probably in the last chapter of his life, uh, last weeks, maybe the last few days. So let's be praying for Ray and Helen this morning, uh, especially. And uh, you will know of others, maybe in your circle of life, that you just say, we, we need to bring their name before the throne of God this morning. We do this in confidence, right? We do it not because it's a Christian thing to do. We pray because we are absolutely confident that our God hears us, understands, empathizes, and responds. So let's do that together this morning. I'm going to give you just a minute, a half a minute in silence for you to pray for those who you know this morning need to be brought before God, and then I'll, I'll pray for us. Let's do that together. This we do, Father, with uh, every measure of confidence that we can have. Uh, even when we lack the confidence or understanding in ourselves or in the people around us or in the circumstances around us, we come before your throne with absolute confidence. Not because we've determined uh, you're worthy, but because you've proven it to us that you are. And so we come before your throne this morning. Uh, some of us come this morning. We, we pray on behalf of Ray and Helen Lewis not easy to imagine the things that are flooding Ray's mind as he knows uh, the situation that he's in physically there appears to be no recovery from and Ray is, is counting and recounting uh, the chapters of his life and his days and that's a very different place to be in we the majority of us have the advantage of going through day to day to day not giving that a second thought and uh, so we do our best to empathize with the burden that rests heavily on him right now. <coughs> on Helen, as she is uh, she's right there, 
witnessing and alongside him through all of that. And so her burden is quite different than his. And uh, many of us here can empathize with her and understand that. I guess the first thing that comes to my mind, fathers, is a thank you because you've placed us in a family, in the art, a larger family of believers that we don't have to share blood with in order to understand experience and to be able to come alongside one another and be able to encourage and love. <clears throat> uh, don't really know what it looks like for any single one of us if we live apart from community of those who love the Lord. And so thank you for the blessing that they can have through us and I pray that you would uh, rest it on our hearts as well, that we are a part of, of what they are experiencing right now. Uh, some of us have also come here this morning uh, anticipating and looking forward to the opportunity to lift up our praise and to get our heads recentered and our hearts recentered around you. And no matter what our circumstances are, every single one of us can say in confidence, God is good. God has been good. God proves to be good, continues to be good. On the best of my days and on the worst of my days, you are who you are. You are who you said you'd be. I want to thank you for that as well. Uh, we come together this morning to bring our offerings uh, that go in the plate, to bring our offerings that come off our tongue, to bring our offerings that shape the, the attitude of our hearts and the attention of our minds. All of this because we pray this morning, you, you are worthy of it. We've sung this song this morning. Holy, holy is the one who was slain on our behalf. And I trust that the power of the truth of the Easter weekend, which is now a week past for us, has not in any way lessened the impact on our lives and certainly won't in the weeks, months ahead. Father, we open your word uh, again, not, not because it's the habit, not because it's just the thing to do on Sunday. We open your word because we anticipate you'll show us something of yourself there again this morning. Uh, we are made rich because of that, because our God has not hidden himself from us. So my prayer is that this morning you will keep me from getting in the way of whatever it is you want to reveal through your word, and I anticipate that we will leave here richer for it. And so uh, I'm eager for your spirit to have its word here this morning. And I just thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What a privilege uh, it is to uh, share together in worship and in prayer with the, with the people of God. Turn your Bibles to Second uh, Timothy. Uh, sometimes when I preach, I jump from one text to another, and I've got you flipping pages around. I'm going to make it real easy on you this morning. Turn to Second Timothy, leave your Bible open there, and you can just sit there all morning. And I want to make that part easy with you, because I'm going to ruin the rest of it for you. Uh, thank you, Becky, for the children's time, and, and referring to, to Genesis, the, the creation story. Let me start off with a, with a real mind-bender for you. You know this. this. This first question should not be hard. This is a yes or no question. I'm convinced everybody in the room knows it. Um, was Moses there at the time of creation? And they all said, no, okay, all right. I thought, I thought it was easier than that, but that was, I wanted to start off a little easy for you. Uh, we, the tradition in the Christian church, most of the tradition, Christian church, most of the tradition in the Christian church is that Moses is the author of what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, some scholars would say we shouldn't even identify as that as five books. That's one five-chapter book from Genesis through to Deuteronomy. And for the most part, there's, there's scholars and academics who would argue the point, but for the most part, 
we've agreed for several hundred years now that Moses was probably the primary author of that. And yet Moses doesn't show up till quite a ways into it. So he's not there at creation, and yet he's the one that wrote about it. So there's this question that comes to mind, and this is what I'm going to be doing to you for the next few weeks. I'm just warning you, and I'll warn you with the risk that next week there'll be about six people here. I'm going to ask you these kind of questions over and over again. I want to start shaping our minds more critically about how we talk about, how we think about our Bibles. So if Moses isn't there, or all good with that, Moses is not there at the time of creation, then where did he get that information from? When Moses sits down and scripts these words, in the beginning, God created, says who? Where, where, where did he get it from? And the answer we don't find in our Bibles. There's nowhere you can go to your Bible and say, oh, see, this is what it says. This is where Moses got the information from. Typically, we would say things like, well, it was divine revelation. Moses went up on the mountain. It's Mount Sinai. The people are down on the bottom of the mountain. Moses goes up, and God says, here's how it goes. And he gives them this divine revelation. In the book of Exodus, And when it talks about the tablets that he carried, you can picture the picture, right? Who saw the Charlton Heston movie, right? There's Charlton carrying these two big stone tablets. And on the tablets in the movie, what, what, is, what is it that they have on the tablets? Ten Commandments. Wrong. <clears throat> Wrong. That, I came here this morning to ruin your Charlton Heston movies for you. Scripture tells us that the entire law was written on that, front and back, both sides. So everything that they considered the law, which is basically the entire book of Leviticus, on those tablets. Okay? It also says in, in Exodus that those tablets were written by God, carved by the finger of God. That's important. We'll come back to that later this morning. So we have concluded, generally, and I don't think it's probably been keeping you up at night, where did Moses get the information? It was divine revelation. God just spoke it to him. All right, that's certainly a possibility. Next week, I'm not going to give it to you yet, but I'm going to tell you this. If God gave Moses the divine revelation of Leviticus, say, then why does the form that Moses gave, the law, the law of Moses, if you go to Leviticus, it talks about certain laws. If this happens, then this is supposed to happen. If a man steals something, then this is supposed to happen. Okay. If you go to Leviticus and read through that, the form, the way that document is laid out, is very, very, very similar to something called the Code of Hammurabi. Hammurabi was an ancient king of Babylon, not the Babylon of Daniel's time, Babylon way earlier, ancient Babylon. The form of Leviticus, the law that Moses brought down, is very, very similar in structure. Think of like a legal document. If you've got a will or you've got a mortgage or something, it has a very similar, it's a very specific structure. The structure of Leviticus is very, very similar to the Code of Hammurabi. And the Code of Hammurabi is dated several hundred years, are you ready? Earlier. That's the kind of things we're going to be dealing with the next few weeks. Why is this divine word given to Moses in structure very similar to other ancient documents that were hundreds of years older? We're going to be asking when we say, I know these things because the Bible told me so. Well, where did that come from? Because if we picture our Bibles as being just a, a divine word of God, you know, the shaft of light, I know, I know often you picture me that way. In my head, you're picturing me as, whoa, the light shining. If that's the way we think of our Bibles, we will 
start to misuse and misunderstand our Bible. So these are the kind of things we're going to be poking at the next couple weeks. I don't really anticipate I'm going to make new friends um, over the next few weeks, and I'm actually okay with that. Um, there's one of the guys, one of the pastor preachers out there who, who I often listen to and I like stuff he does, a guy by the name of Andy Stanley, uh, same last name. He, he learned most of what he knows from me. He doesn't even know who I am. Um, but Andy Stanley is the son of Charles Stanley. Many of you might be familiar with Charles Stanley. Andy, his son, pastors a, a mega church down in the States. Is it, what's the name? What's it, uh, North Point? Yeah, North Point, I think, North Point Church. Anyway, it's one of the huge big megachurches down in the States. You have probably seen an Andy Stanley Bible study or a video or something, whatever. He's gotten himself in a lot of trouble the last few years. A lot of trouble. And he does it, I know, he does it absolutely intentionally. He preaches things like, Ten Commandments no longer apply to us. And he, he intentionally throws those statements out there and lets them hang just to get people unsettled and paying attention. And then he goes on in his sermons to explain what he meant by that. But what do you think his critics often do? They grab that snippet and they post it online and say, Andy Stanley doesn't even believe in the Old Testament anymore. Well, yep, in, in his sermon he said these words, but if you listen to the whole... Anyway, uh, I like him. I like the guy. I, I find that I haven't uh, agreed with his discernment or agreed with his interpretation 100% of the time, but for the most part, like Andy's got himself in a lot of trouble. I'm going to risk getting myself a little bit of trouble the next couple of weeks uh, because... I want to poke this a little bit. What I what I want is, here's my goal, and I'll, I'll tell you the ultimate goal so that we can maybe have a little grace along the way. My goal is that you have a better understanding, understanding of your Bible. Where did it come from? How did it get formed like this? How is it we have this thing in our hand that we call Holy Scripture, and what things had to happen in order for us to have this privilege? And with a better understanding, perhaps our attitudes will change a little bit, and hopefully, at the end of the day, the way in which we handle our Bible and the way in which we research our Bible and are hungry for our Bible will change. That's my goal. That's my goal. And if I have to say a few things that kind of wake us up and go, whoa, 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 I can't believe he said that. I'm, I'll say them. I'm cool with that. I'm, I'm not bothered by the fact that you come out the door and say to me, I don't agree with that. I don't know where you got that. And I'm not coming back next No, come back next Sunday. I don't, it doesn't bother me. It upsets you a little bit. Uh, turn in your Bible, 2 Timothy. Let's see what Paul had to say. This is a scripture reading from this morning. Uh, in the third chapter of this letter, and again, when Paul writes this letter, there's no such thing as chapters and verses. We sometime, several hundred years later, broke it up that way, only so that it'd make it easier to find it. Right? If there weren't any chapters and verses in here, we would have to read through and I'd say, find this word, find this paragraph. Chapters and verses were not part of Paul's letter. But we're okay with it, because it helps us find. So chapter 3, I'm going to start at verse 14. He had previously been talking about the kind of corruption that's going on in the world and the, and the confusion that happens in the church sometimes. And in verse 14 he says this to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it. If you're inclined to mark your Bibles or put marks in your Bible, underline that sentence. That's huge. It's hugely important. He says to Timothy, continue in what you've known. Why? Because it's the divinely inspired word of God? Nope. He says, continue in what you've known. Why? What's the reason he gives them? Because you know the people that taught it to you. They are trusted source people. Paul's referring to himself as one. But he says to Timothy, 
you know whom you learned it from. And then jump down to 16. He says this, and this is the verse that we all know this word. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Two words I want to key in here in Paul's letter. All Scripture. Uh, the Greek word is graphe. Uh, the form that's used here is plural. He, it, this is not all Scripture as in one Scripture. He's talking about the Scriptures. All the Scriptures are God-breathed. Paul writes this letter somewhere between 65 and 67 A.D., uh, just under 70 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And a lot has happened in 70 years. Okay? A week ago, we celebrated what we always do at that time of year, Easter celebration, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when that very first happened, the actual event itself, within 70 years, pretty much the majority of what we now call our New Testament has been written. And so Paul's writing this 65 to 67 years later. When Paul says all Scripture... Okay, here's, here's my first poke at you. He's not talking about the letter that he's writing. He's not even talking about the New Testament. When Paul says, all scripture is breathed of God, what's he referring to? He's referring to what we call the Old Testament. The scriptures. He says, Timothy, look, the scriptures which have been circling around in our Jewish culture for decades now, hundreds and hundreds of years, they're the breath of God. So, the law of Moses, the law that we are so familiar with. Paul uses the word law in all his other letters, talking about the law, the law, the law of the Jews. And he says to Timothy, that law was breathed by God to us. Um, the, the ancient Israelites had some very specific ways in which they gave criteria for what, what was Scripture and what wasn't Scripture. Go ahead and put them up on the screen for me. There's, these were the criteria that they used for what was Scripture. First of all, it can't contradict itself. Um, you can't you can't have one person writing something and then somebody else writes something else and the two are complete conflict. If there was, one of them had to be called into question by the scholars and by the priests and by the, the people of that day. You go looking at, um, I think it's Proverbs 24, 24, 4, and 5. I'm not sure. But there's two verses back to back. One says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. He'll think himself wise. And the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly or he will continue to think himself wise. And so when I see this, it cannot be contradictory to itself unless apparently it's in Proverbs, and then it can say whatever it wants. Secondly, it had to be from a recognized prophet or someone of divine authority. I don't know who gets to make those assignments. Um, if I write a letter, it may not be divine, but if Tammy writes one, apparently it is. Ugh, sorry for that. Uh, I don't know who gets to decide those things, but that was one of their criteria. It had to come from a credible source. I would suggest that for the ancient uh, Israel, Moses would be a credible source. Carl, maybe not. Uh, it depends on what how many friends Carl had. Thirdly, it had to be spoken by uh, spoken by God directly. Um, Ezekiel and Jeremiah do a fair bit of this. The word of the Lord came to me, and so if a prophet says that, that meets that checkbox. <laughs> the word of the Lord was revealed to me. But take a look at the fourth criteria. And I want you to stop and think about this for a second. When asked, what makes a scripture holy? What makes it word of God? And probably their only measurable criteria, I mean, the rest of them are kind of abstract, they're kind of subjective. But this fourth one, you can measure it. You can ask people to raise their hands and take a vote, right? You can literally measure this. Does the community accept it 
Now think about that for a second. What makes a written scripture holy? Which ones do you look at and say, that's not the breath of God, and this one is the breath of God? And one of the criteria is, what do we say? Is that a flag for anybody? This has been some of the toughest sermon prep I've ever done. In this week, I've been in knots over this because I look at that fourth criteria and I think, you got to be kidding me. Since when do we get to decide what God says? But that was firmly set as one of their criteria. If a written script of Moses or any other Old Testament prophet was going to be recognized as canon, scripture, write down the word canon, it had to be accepted by the community as such. All scripture is God-breathed. How do you know it's God-breathed? Well, we agree that it is. That's a bit of a dangerous loop. So, we find uh, that these are the criteria they use. What was considered holy scripture by them uh, was pretty much agreed by the first century. By the time we get to the time of Jesus, um, what is considered holy scripture, the things that Paul was referring to, were pretty much agreed by the priesthood community at that time. Now, I have to back up, that's not completely true because there are books that today we uh, entitle the word Apocrypha too. Uh, in our church, in evangelical Protestant churches, you're going to have a hard time finding pew Bibles that have an, an Apocrypha in them. But if you were to go to a Greek, or, Greek Orthodox church or to a Catholic church, you'll find a whole other section in the Bible with books that most of us maybe are completely unfamiliar with, the Apocrypha. And there are people even today who would say um, we should not have dumped the Apocrypha, anywhere between 12 and 14 books that I would guess the vast majority of here have never seen and maybe never heard of. But there's a fair part of the Christian community outside Protestant churches who would say they should be included in our Bibles. Apocrypha is kind of a funny word. Don't even have heard of that one. Uh, how about Septuagint? How many of you read the Septuagint? How many of you know how much of your Bible is based on the Septuagint? How, do, how many of you know what a Septuagint is? How many would say, I think my Septuagint was backed up with water last week? Not. How about the Masoretic text? When was the last time you sat down and have a good read of the Masoretic text and appreciated how well it's tied to the Dead Sea Scrolls? What? What do all these things have to do with my... I just want to pick up my Bible and read. Which Bible? I have an NIV. What do you have? NIV? Okay, so you and I are on the same team. Does anybody not have an NIV? Oh, yes. Yeah, well, wait a second. I'm not answering that question. ESVs, NLTs. Where did that all come from? And why? Why? What? Who? How many have an NIV apocryphal Masoretic Bible? Ah, there's no such thing, by the way. Um, okay, how about this? This is a little easier. Next question. Go ahead, throw it up on the screen. What if the closed cannon, and it's not a defective weapon on a warship, that's not what a closed cannon is, what is the closed canon? Well, there's there's holy right, there's scriptural writings of Old Testament prophets and New Testament uh, letter writers like Paul, and somewhere along the line, writings become recognized as scripture, and then somewhere along the line, scriptures, a collection of scriptures, become recognized as the canon. What is that about? How did that happen? Let me back up. Uh, last week, we celebrated the Easter story. So there's a time and a place in which Jesus of Nazareth was put to death 
and within a few days was alive again. And his disciples were so empowered by that that they stood before the same people who put Jesus to death and said, you do what you got to do because we've seen it. This is with our own eyes. So this is a word of testimony. I was there. I saw it. Right? So I, I, this isn't about what we believe. This isn't a thing we've made up. It's not a philosophy. It's not a movement. It's not a religion. I'm telling you what I've seen. The man that you put to death, I've seen alive. I had breakfast with him. So that's where we're at. And several hundred years later, you and I sit here with the Bible in our hands and say, this is the word of God. And there's this massive gap in between that we don't very often ask ourselves, what happened? How did we get from there, eyewitnesses to the account, to us today that I hope have the same confidence that they did? How did we do that? How did this happen? Um, how was it decided? And why are there so many versions? Listen, if Paul was referring to, when he said this, if he was referring to the Old Testament texts, have we then taken that principle? Okay, so Paul in 65 AD says, all scripture is breathed of God. And in his mind, he's referring to what we now call the Old Testament. Have we taken that principle that Paul said and just applied it to the New Testament? Who gave us permission to do that? Why am I so confident in my New Testament Bible? And I hope you are. And my goal over the next few weeks is not to shake your confidence in your New Testament. I want you to know why you have that confidence in the New Testament. And I will say this much. It's insufficient to say, breathed of God. I know it's breathed of God, but how do we know it was decided to be breathed of God? Um, if you go to 1 Corinthians, I believe it's in chapter 5, okay? First, you don't, don't go there because I won't even read it for you, but I'll tell you in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, if you're really interested. I think it's 9. Paul says in, with me, 1 Corinthians, he refers to his previous letter that he has sent the Corinthians. Anybody seeing a problem with that? What letter, Paul? We have your 1 Corinthians letter. At least we thought we did. But in 1 Corinthians, he refers to his earlier letter which makes 1 Corinthians actually at least 2 Corinthians. And if you go looking through 1 and 2 Corinthians and the circumstances in which he wrote and the way he describes his other letters, you can come up with as many as, are you ready? Five letters to the Corinthians. So if there's, you know what, let's say there's only four. If there's four Pauline letters to the Corinthians, why do we only have two of them? Anybody curious about where the other two went and what was on them? Like, if he wrote a letter to the Corinthians and said, I'm coming there next week, please get these items, eggs, milk, butter. Like, I don't care if we don't have that letter, right? <laughs> I have no idea. And none of us do have any idea. What was in the other letters that Paul wrote to the Church of Corinth? Because somebody decided those weren't breathed of God. <laughs> Am I doing it to you yet? Am I losing friends yet? You're still in the room. I'm preaching to you. There's only one person left in the room. Um, are we allowed to ask those kind of questions? We are? All right. I just want to make sure. Are we allowed to be a little bit skeptical? Am I allowed to read my text and say, yeah, I wonder what was going on in Paul's life. When Paul says that, I wonder, I wonder that we, we should understand more something about Paul. Look, when Peter says this, maybe that's only... Peter's world. How do I know that's not meant to be a standing principle forever? And look, 
we do not practice our New Testament consistently. We don't. It says in the New Testament in several different places, when you gather together as people of people God, greet each other with a holy kiss. You kissing anybody when you came in here this morning? Why not? The Bible says you should. And it's New Testament. Uh, Paul says in one of his letters, I want men to lift up their hands in holy prayer. And I don't want women to wear jewelry or adorn themselves at all. Ladies, you look wonderful this morning. You just don't look biblical. Now look, I, I'm going to be a little facetious about that. I'm just joking, obviously. But there are things that the New Testament, this is not Old Testament, this is not thousands of years, this is a few hundred years ago, that the New Testament says, and we have dismissed them. Because we look at it we go, oh, the cultural reality. When you understand the cultural context, you understand the text better. And that is actually good hermeneutics. Look at the text and say, okay, you have to understand the history a little bit. You've got to understand what's going on in order to make that phrase make sense. So the church has done well. Hey, if you were part of our study, uh, I think two years ago when we did the study on elders and deacons and discerning text and the gender of elders and that kind of stuff, we find out that nowhere in your Bible is slavery condemned. Nowhere is slavery condemned. So how did the church ever come to the conclusion that slavery can be condemned? Because the Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible says if you're going to be a master, be a good master. And if you're going to be a slave, be a good slave. And treat each other with respect because of the cross of Jesus Christ and what it's accomplished. Never does it say, someday, Christian people, you should abolish slavery. But we as the church rightly concluded that that was where Scripture pointed us to. Even though it doesn't say it anyway. The irony is when we ask these tough questions about Scripture, how can I trust my Bible? The irony is, is that we come back to this very passage. This is the passage we come to when we say that. It is God breathed. Scripture he talks about is the Old Testament, and it is this, God breathed. <coughs> uh, the word is uh, theanostos, is the Greek word. Given by the, go ahead, given by the inspiration of God. It's the one and only time in the entire New Testament that this word is used. There is nowhere else in the New Testament the word theanustos shows up. The breath of God, the wind of God, the very essence of God. Um, it's connected to the same types of words that they talk about the Spirit of God. Genesis 1, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. The Hebrew word for Spirit of God is very similar to the Greek word theanostos, breath of God. And so they're tied together in that way. Uh, Peter writes something very similar. Go back to that, please, the, the Peter script. Peter says it this way. Above all, you must understand, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Prophecy never had its origin in human will. But the prophets, although human, spoke from God as though they were carried along by the Spirit of God. That is the exact same concept as theophnustos, theanustos. And so both Peter and Paul are saying the same thing about Scripture. This is what the early church was looking for. Do Peter, who was an eyewitness to Jesus, and Paul, someone who speaks with authority, the power of God, are they saying the same thing? Then maybe we as a community ought to flag that and pay attention. And that's exactly what's happening. Peter and Paul are saying the exact same thing. Theanustos, what does it mean? Um, the Old Testament description of the tablets in Exodus 32, the, the word that's used there is... Uh, which means the work of God. Uh, the, the idea is, the story says that Moses carved out the tablets 
took them up the mountain, and God literally inscribed on the tablets. It was the work God. It was the handiwork of God. It wasn't God told Moses and Moses chiseled. It was God himself wrote on the tablets. The closest word that would mimic that in the New Testament is found in Ephesians 2.10, where it says, you and I are the workmanship of God. The, the craft work. Somebody has sat down and carved out and done something. That's how you're described in Ephesians 2. You are the handiwork of God. And, and the tablets in the Old Testament are described the same way. They are the work, the literal handwork of God. That's not the word that's used in uh, Paul's passage. That's not Theanistos, is not that. So God delivers his law on the tablets through Moses to the people by his literal handiwork. Moses comes out and says, I, I chiseled out this piece of rock, but God carved these words in it. But in describing those tablets, Paul, several hundred years later, says they are the, the breath of God. And somewhere along the line, between the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the testify, uh, testify of the eyewitnesses, we've collected further writings, Paul's letters, the Gospels, Peter's writings, John's writings. We've collected them and added them to the ancient scripts that were agreed upon by the people of Israel, and now we call that our Bible. Now you think about this. It, it took some time for that to happen. If, if whatever the date on the calendar was of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, ready for this? It was 400 years before the church had what we what we now call the New Testament. There was one letter and then another letter, and, and some people argue Matthew was first, and some people argue Mark was first, and I couldn't care less who was first. But there was the early letters, the Gospels themselves, and then there was Paul's letters and other ones in between. And, and it's generally agreed that Revelation was one of the last ones written by John, that took 70 or 80 years for those letters to be written and collected and start to circulate to the churches, and it took almost 400 years before the church decided which ones were Theanistos and which ones were not. And so for the first 400 years of the church that we are now a part of, there was no such thing as a New Testament. That's exciting. I can see some of you nodding off. Listen. It is also the same time period in which more people came to faith in Jesus Christ than at any other time in the history of the church. Not since the first century have we seen more people come to faith in Jesus Christ than at a time when there was no Bible for them to read from. The power of God in his word is no different than the power of God apart from his word. So the process of canonization this is just my description. You would go online and look. There's a dozen different ways that it is described. But this is what I would say is the process of canonization. Go ahead. See it on screen. It's basically this. Talking about the New Testament now. It is the writing, receiving from the churches. Hey, we got a letter from Paul. Everybody gather around. This is, this is big. The writing, receiving, the collecting, and the keeping. That's a big deal in the first century. The circulating, the evaluating, the copying, and preserving the writings of those who spoke of Jesus with experience, they were there. You get a letter from John or from Peter, you're going to pay attention because John and Peter were right there when it happened. And authority. Paul was not right there when it happened, but Paul was, he calls himself one abnormally born. Jesus encountered him. The risen Jesus encountered him. So they have experience, they have authority, and collectively coming to agree that something about these letters should grant them a higher standing and recognition within the faith community. It is a process of the early church that says, 
how do we recognize the voice of God? How do we recognize the breath of God? And there are certain things that have to be true for us collectively to do that. What that means is when you look at your Bible and see what we call the New Testament, you have to know that we, the church, had the determining voice on whether or not it's there. I'll say that again. When you look at what's in your New Testament and you entrust the Word of God, you are also entrusting that the church collectively has rightly decided what should be there and what should not. Now, sometimes I ask rhetorical questions and I just keep it. I'm actually, I'm actually going to seek for you to, to, to give some answers here. You, you think about this. Your New Testament, the Theanastos, breathed Word of God, in the form and content that it is, is there very much in part because the early church decided what was in and what was out. What are the red flags? What's the concerns? What's the questions that are popping into your mind? Good question. What got left out? There's at least three Corinthian letters, probably more, four, like more four or five. What got left out? What other questions are on your mind? Why? What, what was the criteria, right? How did they decide what went in, what went out? What else is on your mind? Who were these people? And how did they get that authority? You know, at least we have this confidence. At least we know that the church doesn't make mistakes, right? So, But other things are on your mind. Your New Testament is only the New Testament that is because the church said so. What else about that comment bothers you? Left God out of it, yeah. If it's only the church that decided that, and we leave God out of it, that's a problem. But Paul says that scriptures are theanustos, and if that does apply to the New Testament, certainly the breath of God has to be there. So suddenly you realize if it was, in a literal sense, a collection of somebody who had some type of authority, who got to decide some things were out, some things were in, and God can't be removed from the equation, then what does there have to be between the church and God? got to be some type of cohesive, collective, cooperative effort, does there not? Which implies to me the word theanostos doesn't just mean, that's not the way it works. It had to have worked differently than that. So what does theanustos then really mean? Throw it up there on the screen. If God wanted us to have his fully revealed word of life, then why in the world would he deliver it to the voice of mankind? If he could write on a stone tablet sometime back in 1000 BC, or whenever that was, and reveal himself through that, Moses came down the mountain and said to the people, boom. God wrote this. Then why didn't he just do that later on? Why didn't he just say to Paul, go to this place, dig in this cave, I have scripted on the walls of the cave my word for mankind. Could we have a little more confidence in that? No, I'd probably be asking questions about Paul and what kind of caves he's been climbing in. If God wanted to reveal himself perfectly, why include us in it? Why not, I say, the work of God, rather than theanostos, the breath of God. I mean, surely God knows that the church gets things wrong, right, sometimes, so why deliver his breathed word to the church? 
if the New Testament you hold in your hand today has been processed through a significant measure of influence by the church, the process of canon, how do we make confidence in what's in there? How much of Paul's writings might be missing? How much of other people's writings might be missing? Were there other letters that maybe other prophets, other disciples, other people wrote that just we don't have? What about if Jesus wrote anything? Where did that go? John says he taught so many things, he wrote so many things, he did so many things, I can't even tell you all the stuff he did. John, I would be willing to read those books. Right? Where did that go? Does confidence in my New Testament require that I have the same measure of confidence in the early church? That they made wise decisions. Does my confidence in the New Testament have to mean I have confidence in the process of canon? This did not just appear on your bookshelf. God doesn't speak directly to Zondervan. He doesn't just speak to them and say, here's what I want you to print. There was a long process. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 12, Revelation 22. There's these warnings throughout Scripture that says, be careful you don't add to my word and be careful you don't take away from my word. And there's warnings there right from early, early, early time. By the time uh, of Jesus, the Old Testament canon is pretty much established. The, the collective church has agreed what is what. Um, by the end of the 4th century, the New Testament canon is generally agreed. And somehow it got closed. This sermon series is not meant to be a critique of our faith. It, it's not meant to say we ought to question our Bibles because I'm not sure we got the right stuff in them. That's not the intent of this at all. The intent of this sermon series is so that you have a better understanding of how you got what you got and why you can be so confident in it. Here's the problem. Uh, there's, this, there's this terrible, nasty thing that pastors tend to say sometimes. And, and I've repeated it myself. Um, it's, it's nasty, but unfortunately it's relatively true. Most of our churches are Bible illiterate. Most of us in the church today know very, very little of our Bibles and about our Bibles. And, and that's, I'm not poking at anybody. I'm just saying, as those people who would stand up and say, follower of Jesus Christ, committed follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going I'm to bend my whole life around the gospel, the narrative of Jesus Christ. For those of you who'd be willing to say that, a high percentage of us don't have a very high knowledge of our Bibles. Not only the words of, but how it came about. And so for the next few weeks, that's our goal. That you would that you would get to a place where you say, I'm not scared of it. It's not a mystic, divine, weird thing that, you know, I don't really know what I'm going to get when I open it, this type thing. It's not that. And it's not just religious writings of a bunch of men that I'm going to buy into. It's not that in this, but, but there's something that this, this Theanustos word, given by God, scripted by men, discerned by the collective church, that I want to be a part of. And you can't be a part of it unless you get into it. And you're less likely to get into it if you don't understand it. So this is the goal of the next few weeks. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to bring your Bibles with you. And if you don't have a study Bible or a Bible that, that, you're, that you want to pull open and bend the pages and mark it up into whatever, you let us know, we'll get you one. Because I want you to have one in your hand, and I want you to digest it, I want you to ingest it, I want you to feed on it, I want you to recognize that this is the living, active power of God, even though it's just ink on a page. It, it is just that, right? It, people always say, well, be careful, you don't, you know, don't ever... 
drop no I dropped it on the floor it's okay because it's just paper and ink it is the breathing living breathing word of God for my life and I have found unbelievable hope and encouragement and enlightenment when I, I didn't think there were at all possible for me I found it here so I get this thing about it being Thanos stops even though it was a letter that Paul wrote to somebody else he did not have me in mind when he wrote it the early church had no idea what I was going to go through a couple thousand years later when they were discerning it and figuring it out some of the books were in and some of the books were out and then we finally got a list and then a few hundred years later some somebody came up with another list I have confidence in the Word of God. And, and my goal the next few weeks is to give you the same measure of confidence, but we're going to have to ask some tough questions as we get there. Does Theanustos, does the word Theanustos suggest that there has to be some type of cooperative work between God and his people? And the answer to that is yes. And that's not new. That has been God's design right from the start that there would be cooperative work between him and his people. And if that is true, that has implications for every single one of us. What it means, for one thing, is you can't just sit and wait for God's word to be revealed to you. You can't just sit and pray on it, and God will whisper into your life. It doesn't work that way. There's a cooperative effort that you need to get in and do the hard work sometimes and look at it and go, I, this thing here has not been true in my life. This verse says that God will always rescue those who are faithful, and I've been faithful and he hasn't rescued. So how do I understand this? And we do it in community. We go to someone else and say, have you ever had this experience? Have you ever felt this way? Because I feel like I'm doubting God right now. And if you dig into that, and if you spend the time, and if you go looking for it, someone else is going to say, oh yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Here's how it worked out for me. Look, over here, this is what I found to be true. And then Theanostas, was enlightened to me. And that's our goal. It's going to make you think of your Bible and use your Bible differently. If the church isn't doing that, if the, if the people of God are not doing that, processing, digesting, and finding out how to use his word, if we're not doing it, I don't know who we're waiting on. So that's for us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I, I have just barely pegged on a couple of unsettling questions when we think about the critique of our Bible and, and how we learn to trust our Bible and why we learn to trust our Bible and how we get hungry for our Bible, I have just barely touched on a couple of uh, unsettling thoughts. My suspicion is this. Most of us, God, aren't even asking the questions. M most of us in the church today uh, have other things going on we're, we're busy we got enough going on in our life we're actually not even asking the tough questions some of us maybe are a little bit uh, intimidated by our bible uh, some of us we're not going to say it out loud we're not going to admit it to anybody here but we're a little bit uninterested in our bible some of us tried and it was too hard we didn't understand it some of us have read it and then not really felt that it made a whole lot of difference some of us have found one or two verses that just changed our world and that's as far as we got and some of us God are, are, are in it often and digging around and, and figuring it out and sifting things and we don't find answers quickly but they, they come over time 
my suspicion is that in this room we are we are coming from all different perspectives and all different investigation and all different measure of uh, hunger for the Word of God. So I'll I'll close with my prayer, Father, the same place that I opened it before the message, and that was I will pray that Your Spirit will say what I fail to articulate, and that Your Spirit will whisper into our lives and draw us into Your Word, and we will get a clearer and clearer and clearer understanding of this Thanatos. How can something be written by man, discerned by man, handled and managed by man, and yet still be declared as the breath of God? It, it is an awesome thought that I can actually dare to say I hold the breath of God in my hand. And it is a terrifying thought to think that when I open it, I may come face to face with you. So I'm asking you, God, to take us there in the measured steps that you know we are able to receive. Thank you, because I pray that in the same confidence that I ask for everything else. In the power of the name of Jesus. Amen. Can I get a worship team to come on up and help us to uh, finish our morning by response in song, please?